Welcome to Chasing Hermes, the pursuit of Mercury, with your hosts, Sean and Jason. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. Hey, uh, Sean, uh, you've heard of the uh, LHC, haven't you? The LHC. Refresh my memory on that. It's the uh, Large Hadron Collider in uh, Geneva, Switzerland. Oh, yes, yes, of course. A lot of people are saying that this this thing is going to be a doomsday device. It's going to you know destroy the Earth and you know all these things. Right, it's going to suck and, us uh, all into a big black hole. Yeah, which you know it's not true. Right, but it would be um, a great human achievement if we could do that. This would definitely be going out with a bang. Sure. Or, or if if we do create a a, a black hole, although it's absolutely impossible, it would be going out with a, with a great shroop, you know, rather than a big <laughs> big bang. Be that as it may. The thing that drives the LHC, it's the search for the internal components that make up matter. Well and said. I think, yeah, thank you. And uh, I think that's really a search that's been going on for as long as mankind has been able to think and write and read and philosophize. Yes. And um, I think even the old Greeks were, were trying to get some sort of idea about what nature was made up of, Certainly. what the physical nature was made up of. Did you know, for example, that the uh, four elements that we use in the Western mystery tradition now, earth, water, fire, and air, go all the way back to Greece? Uh, I did, as a matter of fact, uh, due to the research I've been doing the past couple days. Ah, what a coincidence. <laughs> it is a coincidence. We should do a show on this. <laughs> We should. Hey, I have an idea. What? Let's do that one right now. Oh, okay. Excellent. Yeah. All right. Well, we first see these uh, earth, air, fire, water being discussed in Western intellectual thoughts through the pre-Socratics. Uh, these are the ancient... The what? The pre-Socratics. They are, uh-huh. they are the ancient... So they're like before Socrates? Exactly. The uh-huh. Greek philosophers who existed prior to Socrates. Uh, Socrates really changed the style um, of the dialogue that took place in philosophy. But before that, we see many early Greek thinkers trying to unravel this mystery, just like we are today, of what really composes the world. What are things really made up of when you really analyze it? And this first began in the the movement of monism, where there were a number of Greek philosophers trying to discover the prime matter, the first element that all other elements, uh, all other matter is derived from, the prime materia. And this re- now monism could almost be uh, translated to singularity, correct? Yes, it, it, it's like the one thing. The one thing, right? So they believe that even though we we see and we witness all these multifarious objects in the world that at the core there's really one thing, one substance, one essence that they were all derived kind from. Kind of like a grand unified theory of philosophy. Exactly. So, you know, this took place thousands of years before any modern physicist thought of unifying forces and matter. Um, they had already, you know, they were already ahead of us at that time, at least in their quest. So the first famous notable philosopher um, in this movement was named Thales. <clears throat> and Thales believed that that one substance that everything was derived from was water. Now, it's important to understand that they didn't believe literally that every everything 
material was made up of the chemical water that we think of, you know, H2O. <clears throat> That's not the case. It was just that water represented this, you know, oneness, indestructible, immutable, and original substance that, although it seems to form a unity, can be divided up and, and it moves in sort of hidden ways. So Thales then believed that we could reduce this all to water. Then later, one of his students, Anaximander, thought, you know, this is a little too simplistic. And he was a bit of a, di a deeper thinker in the abstract, and he called that one substance the boundless. It was the infinite. You know, it's similar to the Kabbalistic concepts of, you know, the Ein Sofor, you know, that limitless, boundless light. And in Greek, this was called the Aperon. And it was Anaximander who divided up the elements in terms of hot, cold, moist, and dry. He believed that this boundless aperon could be converted to earth, air, fire, and water through the distillation of those elements from one to the other. Now, you, you, you're mentioning there the hot and the cold and the dry and the wet. Now, these are the uh, classic attributes that we give to the four elements, right? Uh, right? That each one is somewhere within a spectrum, a two-dimensional spectrum between hot and cold and dry and wet. And you're saying exactly. this goes this goes all the way to before Plato and before Socrates? Yeah, like, wow. right. This is, I believe, somewhere around 600 BC or maybe even earlier, and Aximander was the first. Now, he did not get into the details of exactly what earth, air, fire, and water were. So yeah, that goes all the way back to uh, Anaximander, who's the first to describe these elements in, in these terms. Uh, then later we have Anaximenes. He believed that everything was composed of air and that it was the process of condensation and rarefaction um, that, that was his argument. He believed that because we can see air... Uh, condensates and rarefies that that was evidence that this was the same type of process that went on between the one substance and uh, the many forms of matter that we see today. So it was more the process that led to his discovery. Kind of like the search for phlogiston in the 19th century. Yeah, yeah, I exactly. You know, it, They didn't know exactly what the substance was, but they knew it had to be there. Um, and again, the, it's not that Anaximenes believed that literally air composed everything. It was like blowing up a balloon of matter. But he believed that that one substance was best described abstractly through the element of air. And then, of course, it wouldn't be fair if one of the elements didn't get a chance. So Heraclitus believed everything was made of fire. He didn't have a choice, did he? It's <laughs> a big one. He didn't have a choice. He's like, well, water and air had been taken, so I'll choose fire. Well, it, it was a really good reason that he chose fire, um, because for him, substance, what there was, was actually defined by the property of being, and he believed that this was a process, right? And fire, because it's, it's not stable, fire is only experienced through its process of burning, right? At the moment that it stops changing, it ceases to exist. And this was his, his worldview, was that everything that exists is in a process of change and flux. And therefore, um, fire then was the one element, the prime materia. 
That's sort of the same ideas that you find in uh, Zoroastrianism today, which is a religion that still exists, which is centered entirely around fire. Fire being the spirit, the life force, the, the, the process of life, in, if you will. And it's a religion that goes back to before Christ. Yeah, and Heraclitus, again, did give way because Zoroaster did come out of um, different you know, Greek movements of philosophy of the day, and they you know, took their roots back to Heraclitus and beyond, you know, when fire was seen as, as the one element. Heraclitus was the first to talk about the logos, you know, that principle which reconciles opposites. So you have always in all things two opposites and one which reconciles them. Right, so when the Gospel of John talks about Christ being the Logos, he's very specific. He's referring to this particular doctrine of Greek thinking that goes way back and is extremely defined already at the outset of the New Testament. Yes, that's further explained through the philosopher of Anaxagoras. You know, Anaxagoras believed that everything began in a state of chaos. Um, you know, in the beginning, the earth was out form and void. You know, he believed that the world was just a chaotic soup and that the only thing that gives order to that was mind, you know, what the Greek, the Greeks call nous. Right. And this mind was not necessarily the, you know, human personification of God that many would have today, but rather just that, that conscious, deliberate, logical acting force which brings order to chaos. And again, he was expanding on this concept of the logos, the aspect of that one force which can take the opposite contending forces that on their own lead to just chaos and provide order. So this this ended the the stage of the monistic movement, uh, the movement of monism of primateria. In later Greek thinking, the the quest for discovering the one element takes a back seat as philosophers become more and more materialistic. Then we move into more of the, the pluralistic and atomistic movement where they view the world as, you know, these elements, earth, air, fire, and water, as explained by Empedocles, as actual irreducible substances. Right. They believed that these were atoms, that there was an earth atom, an air atom, fire, and water, and that at their core they could not be reduced to anything less. So, for instance, Empedocles did see the world as composed of these four elements, and it was the forces of love and strife, that process of coming together and of repelling, that then could take these four atoms, these four elements, and form the rest of the world from them. And this really isn't that different than how modern science had acted up until, I believe, the discovery of of quantum mechanics. And then, finally, one of the last developments would be uh, Plato himself. Uh, Plato's view was that uh, his, his addition to Empedocles was that each of these elements, each of these atoms, actually had a geometric shape and that fire was actually a tetrahedron, right? Okay, what's a tetrahedron? A tetrahedron is a four-sided pyramid structure 
that is like a pyramid of Egypt, but rather than having four sides, it actually has three, and then its base is a triangle. So you can think of it much like uh, in in the different role-playing tabletop games. Uh, this would be like your four-sided die. Uh, air, the octahedron, is composed of eight triangles. That's sort of like your your D8, your eight-sided die. You just outed yourself as a geek there. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we both did. Ah, crap. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I want the world to know. Yeah, thanks. Water is the icosahedron. That's the 20-sided die, the, the composed of 20 triangles. And earth is the old-fashioned cube. That's just your normal six-sided die. Now... Plato believed that since it's clear that the physical world both is solid and can be viewed as visible, that the primary elements were earth and fire. But he believed that these elements needed further elements to uh, combine them in different ways. And this is where he explains air and water as those elements which then can give way to combine earth and fire to compose the rest of the world. So his... His aim was to be able to show that because these elements had um, very specific geometric forms, that they could then be transformed, right? So you could think of this as since air, for instance, is composed of eight triangles and fire is composed of four, then there must be some sort of mathematical way that the world can take one air element and turn it into two fire elements and and so on. So this was his addition to the system was this transformation of one element to another. And it should be noted that um, his student Aristotle was then uh, the one who later came came around and he assigned earth, air, fire, and water to their properties of hot, dry, wet, and cold, right? So he believed that air was hot and wet, fire was hot and dry, earth was dry and cold, and water was wet and cold. Um, Many people wonder where these attributes come from, and it's most likely because of the Mediterranean climate. Uh, It's fairly obvious You know, if you live in the Mediterranean, that earth is cold and dry, air is hot and wet, and so on and so forth. Of course, if you live up north... um, Then everything is kind of cold and wet anyway. (laughs) Everything's just cold and wet, and you don't have a really cool philosophical system. Everything is made out of Um, snow. (laughs) Yes. Yes. So, So we owe that to the old Greeks, eh? We owe that to the old Greeks. And, And we see now how... These elements, which we use on a regular basis from, you know, modern-day Kabbalah to the Western Mysteries, the Golden Dawn system, uh, neo-paganism, all forms of of magic. I can't think of a single form of magic that doesn't employ um, these five elements. And you're asking, okay, well, what about the fifth element? Well, um, both Aristotle as well as Archimedes uh, both postulated the the quintessence, the fifth element, uh, the ether. And this developed mainly out of the awareness that when they looked into the heavens, there seemed to be other objects beyond our world that were unchanging. And this quintessence um, first began as a way to explain uh, how the stars and the planets were, what matter they were formed of. And it was viewed as this unchanging 
uh, element that then later would be understood to give way to you know the further four elements as a governing body just as the planets and the stars seem to govern the earth so too does this fifth element this ether this quintessence govern the four elements of earth air fire and water all right so coming back to today what are the four elements in our tradition now all right so we still use the the classical elements earth air fire water and then we will supersede that with you know spirit generically speaking and we use these elements um both mystically through the kabbalistic tradition um but also as magicians um as those seeking to affect change in the material world just as you know it was the goal of of the ancient greeks and plato and later alchemists to first understand nature but then so that they could affect change in nature so what we do those of us who practice the magical tradition will try to understand these elements on a deeper level and how these energies play out in the world we no longer really uh believe that uh, at the core we can zoom down and see little earth air fire water particles but we understand them more as abstract forms of energy and motion and uh, movements of of current if you will in the universe so what you're saying is that we can we can look at the universe ie our version of the universe our subjective universes through these different glasses and thereby discover something about the world is what you're saying that would be one approach that you could take in order to affect change in the world um it's an old alchemical hermetic principle that by affecting change in yourself in your own personal universe you can then affect change in the universe around you so by becoming more intimately aware of these energies of earth air fire and water in your life and what those entail uh we can begin to start affecting change in ourselves and in the world but first you have to understand what exactly these energies are so perhaps it would be a uh, a good idea to just go over some of the um simpler understandings of these energies in a more abstract symbolic form okay so in earth we have things like your job things like your source of income um anything related to earth uh, the physical soil uh such as farming such as fertility the ground beneath you stability health food that kind of thing anything really that sustains you materially now it's been said that earth is the product of air water and fire so air is more the things that go on in our mental lives uh meaning thoughts anything regarding your memory uh anything that you're uh, actively learning or actively teaching when you're taking tests in school it's a very air related activity um in magic it's uh to do with divination and that sort of thing yeah anything that is mental i guess is is the keyword okay and then what would you say converse to that water would be well in water as opposed to the mentalism of air is more to do with the emotional nature of 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 human beings um anything to do with your feelings with your deeper emotions um when you're feeling strong faith it could be a strong sense of of 
uh, compassion, any kind of higher forms of love, devotion, of friendship, that sort of thing. Water is also very nurturing. Uh, you can't grow a plant without feeding it plenty of water. And how, how would water then relate to um, uh, intuition or psychic development? Right. Well, when we talk about water as being very intuitive, we talk about it as being a reflective element, kind of like when you see the moon reflected on a lake, you know, a very calm lake. And the metaphor here is also that if you want to be intuitive, you need to be able to distinguish between your emotions and your feelings and that of the object you're trying to divine in the sense that you need to let your own personal waters become absolutely tranquil uh, before you can see the true reflection in them. Does that make sense? Oh, excellent. Yeah, that's mm. excellent. And then uh, finally, fire. Mm. Well, um, favorite element. Uh, fire has to do with passion and energy and war and that sort of thing. Um, it has to do with competition. has to do with uh, athletic endeavors. Any, anything that is related to your vitality. Um, but there's a flip side to it as well, of course, in that um, you know wars can be waged for good reasons over bad reasons. You can misuse your anger. You can be violent, and and um, fire covers all of those things. As we mentioned earlier, fire is also often seen as a divine spark. And uh, when when you say somebody's got spark or he's lost his spark, in the sense that's that's coming back to this this use of fire as a metaphor for your own drive and passion basically but fire in itself cannot build life you can't you can't have fire holding fire you need a container for it and that's where the other other elements come in and temper that fire and translate that fire into the physical world oh that's excellent yeah and then Ultimately, uh, these four elements are superseded and, and governed and regulated through the forces of spirit, through that breath of the divine, unknowable one that moves and animates life. Right. Spirit is sort of the, the ruler of the other elements, at least ideally. We all know the reverse pentagram, the sort of satanic pentagram, which is it's in a sense saying that the lower elements are the master of or the spirit. Right. Um, but in the positive or upright pentagram, then spirit is influencing and vitalizing and quickening all of the other elements into doing what's good, basically, and so that the other elements can reflect and resemble something of a higher nature. Excellent. So there we have it. The, these are the the this perhaps overly simplistic but still very powerful uh, understandings of the five elements within our lives, which we can represent um, normally through the symbol of the pentagram, um, which gives way to even deeper symbolism. I'm sure we'll, we should do a podcast on that. We should do a podcast on that. What a great idea. <laughs> Excellent. And, uh, well, I think we the elements are a really useful way to look at yourself and to look at the world by, by, by inference. Because when you can look at yourself and analyze yourself from one of these angles at a time, you can learn amazing things about your own internal ma- makeup. And by extension, you'll also learn something about the world. And uh, what's even better is that 
once you've gained that knowledge through introspection, really, um, you are also endowed with the potential to um, change these things. You're not only a passive observer of these elements, you're no longer just uh, cast away on, the, on, on, on these great oceans of water, for example, or swept away on, on, on the, the tempests um, of air or buried under mountains of earth, etc., you can really do something about it. Um, if you analyze where you're at in your personal pentagram, you can also purify all these elements of your internal elements, and therefore, thereby you can perfect your human nature. I'm, I'm beginning to sound like a Scientologist here, but it's really true. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, it, and it's excellent. You know, that is, for many of us in, in the... Um, initiatic tradition that is ultimately um, the power of of dividing the world and our soul into these five elements is so that it gives us a path by which we can purify our soul which we can elevate it to its highest potential and then become truly um, powerful and effective tools of moving divine currents that's right and the idea of initiation into the Western mystery tradition is that you're isolating one of these elements within you at a time and at a later stage all of these different elements are put back together and uh, once you've taken all the elements all the different parts of your little engine that which makes you tick and you you, you brushed it clean and you 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 blew out all the grit and the dirt and then you put it back together you got a brand new engine, mm. and hopefully it, it runs faster, and uh, and uh, will help you pass all the other engines. <laughs> <laughs> that analogy has its flaws. Visit our website at www.chasinghermes.com or send us an email at info@chasinghermes.com to inquire about the Western mystery tradition please visit www.western-mysteries.com.